I invite you, if you have a Bible, to go to Matthew chapter 12. We'll uh, pray together in just a minute. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to start out around verse 38 in just a few minutes. A detail we want you to be aware of. After this service, Sam and Carrie Bruce were having a luncheon for them. Sam and Carrie, are you in this service someplace? Stand up if you are. I can call you up. There you guys are. The the, the big delay there. Let's uh, say hi to Sam and Carrie with me. Welcome back to Michigan. And so Sam and Carrie are uh, in a month, uh, probably less than that actually, before the end of December, headed back to the mission field. They're two of the missionaries that New Hope supports. And so when you do giving here at New Hope, you may not have uh, realized that, but 10% of every dollar goes to missions work. And we started doing that uh, 12 years ago when we launched as a church. And so when you give, 10% goes directly to individuals like Sam and Carrie. And we support work around the world. And today there's a lunch and reception for them after this service. So if you're able to stay, we'd love to have you do that. And you want to learn more about their work. They're in the South Asia Pacific area. They'll fill you in on some of the details of what they do there. Um, But this last trip, they were gone for three and a half years. And so probably going to be gone for a long time again. And if you get a chance to stop in and just even say hi to them, that would be a great thing to do. So if you're in Matthew chapter 12 this morning, you're where I'm at on October 6th. We launched the parable series. You might be new to New Hope, and maybe this is a new thought to you, but we've been working through the parables of Jesus for 10 weeks now. Can you believe 10 weeks have gone that fast? We started October 6th. Here we are in the 10th week, and we're ending today with the last of the first section. So if you're wondering where this is going... In January, we'll start the second section, and with each section, there'll be 10 parables, and there's four of them together, so obviously that's 40 parables. So in New Hope, New Hope time language, that's going to take about seven years to do, okay? <laughs> we'll be in it a while. There'll be part A, there'll be part B on some of them. We've worked through the first 10. They, they only get deeper and meatier from here. If you think some of the things you've seen so far, like where we're going this morning, is difficult to interpret. Uh, It really gets fascinating, even more so when we jump into the ones in January. But next weekend, we're going to be starting a Christmas series, a three-part Christmas series. So we'll hit the brakes on the parables for three weeks, and then we'll transition back over to the parables again. So camping out for really long periods of time in a section like we're doing with the parables, it, it takes a dedication of time, and it takes a discipline. It takes a discipline in your spiritual walk to stay with the booklet that Rich has written and and study along and read and take notes as you're working in the service, but the outcome is for your benefit. It, it, it It speaks so strongly into a better understanding of who you are before him. And so in order to really be disciplined and dedicated, I, I need personally to slow down. I don't know about you, and I want to pray that way with you this morning. I want to pray for Sam and Carrie and their trip back to the mission field. I'd like to pray with you about who's going to be coming with you in the next few weeks to the Christmas services. And I want to pray for ourselves right now about the dedication of time and and really disciplining ourselves to move at a pace in which God has opportunity to speak to us, that we're not moving so fast that we outpace his ability to actually speak into our lives. And we can do that. We can become so busy that we miss God's speaking. So let's pray that way. Would you join me in that? Father, we lift up to you, your servants, Sam and Carrie, and we ask that as the Bruces go back to the mission field, that you bless them. Put your hand on them, Father, and and use them in a way that just glorifies yourself and advances your kingdom. I pray that you give them protection and give them safety. 
God, we ask that you would guard them and that you would guard over their children and that you would be glorified through their work. I pray for each of us in this auditorium as we think towards who we might be inviting with us to church over the next couple weeks, those especially who might come on Christmas Eve. In advance, Father, we pray that you begin working on hearts and that you prepare a fertile soil so that your word can go deep. And now we ask for ourselves that you would allow us to slow down. That we would really move at a pace, Father, that would be worthy of you. And that we wouldn't be so consumed with the affairs of Christmas and purchasing gifts and whose homes we get to that we leave you out of it. So i got to ask you to begin right now in this moment that you speak through the power of your word. The very things that you've shown us that you personally speak in this parable. God, use this to massage our hearts. And where you need to equip us, equip us. And where there's individuals who are new to church, you need to speak into their lives. God, I pray that you would do that. We pray for all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The parable before you this morning is absolutely captivating. On one level, it's because it's God speaking. And he speaks very clearly, but some ways you might look at it and say, I'm confused by that, and that's why we're going to spend time in it this morning. But it's not just because it's God speaking. This is a remarkable situation. He begins speaking about demonic activity, and he begins speaking about hearts and whether or not hearts are yielded, and it's kind of all blended together. I told you what parables were 10 weeks ago when we started with the parables, and I I want to put the definition for you on the screen one more time. A parable is a, a laying alongside, and you've heard me describe it this way over the last few weeks. Jesus is taking a physical reality and laying it alongside a spiritual reality in order to draw truth out of it that's applicable to your life. And so if you have your notes this morning, you're really going to want them. They're in your bulletin, especially as it relates to this particular parable, because there's so many things that he lays alongside, it takes some writing down to get it. So don't be surprised if I encourage you along the way to really look at your notes as we're working through this. Here's what we're going to do that's a little bit different than what we've done in the last nine weeks. Normally, we've been working our way into the parable very gently, and some of them have only been a sentence long. This particular one, we're going to jump into feet first. I'm going to read the parable to you, and then we'll come back to the background. So let's start with the parable itself, and it starts this way in verse 43. This is Jesus speaking. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, if you took the parable just by itself and read that and read that alone and didn't know the background of what's going on before or after, you'd be caused to recoil and say, what? What did I just read? And maybe some of you are thinking that right now. Like, what is he talking about? In which generation does he call evil? What's he speaking of there? Well, to understand this parable, you really need the background. And it's especially helpful if you happen to miss the parable we did last week to go back and catch up on that later this week. It's a parable on the unforgivable sin. And Jesus speaks about the unpardonable sin. And we spent some time diving into that last week. And it'd be especially helpful if you got that. But I'll do what I can to catch up along the way. 
In the parable of the unpardonable sin that we spent some time with last week, Jesus was driving home the point that God has forgiveness that abounds. It's just unlimited. If you believe that God's forgiveness abounds to everyone, did you say amen this morning? It's unlimited. Except Jesus said there's one thing that's unforgivable. And we spent that time with it last week. Even though God's forgiveness abounds to everyone, there's one thing, it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and he had to show individuals what that was and how that actually happens and how in the world could we grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, this in truth is a continuation of that from last week, and let's catch you up along the way. Here's how it actually starts in verse 38. This is the background to that big parable you just read. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, by the time the scribes and the Pharisees have asked Jesus to show them a special sign, their hatred for him is driving them. It drives everything they think about how they can trap him. Possibly, how could they set him up? Even before he accused them of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're already thinking about how in the world they're going to destroy him. How are they going to take him out? So they want to be sure that the very next attempt to discredit him will succeed. So they demand a special sign. They demand something that's super spectacular. They want to prove that he's an imposter. So this is not an innocent request. This is a setup. Um, Mind you, to be a scribe or a Pharisee, specifically to be a scribe within the Pharisees, you had to be at least 30 years of age. And you had to spend years upon years upon years deeply studying what they called the Torah or the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible. They knew it backwards and forwards. Well, those who were the elite of the elite, the finest of the finest, actually became lawyers. They became part of the Sanhedrin and the Supreme Court. And these particular scribes who were also lawyers were held in great honor and really high respect by the people. Some of them belonged to the Sadducees and some of them belonged to the Pharisees. And these are the two ruling parties at that period of time. They're political parties, but they're also religious parties. And they combine the two together. While they're laying what they think is a trap for Jesus, they bite their tongues because they call him teacher. Of all people, these individuals consider themselves the least in need of teaching. They don't need anybody to teach them. They've studied the Torah for years. They're the lawyers of the lawyers. So they know the law. So for them to call Jesus teacher is a bit sarcastic. Remember last week, just a few verses earlier in chapter 12, when Jesus is casting the demon out of the man, they call him a tool of Satan. So to turn right around and only a few sentences later call him teacher is a bit sarcastic. But they come and they do it anyway and they say, we want to see a sign from you. This is recorded in Matthew and it's recorded in Mark, it's recorded in Luke as well. What you're looking at here is not a curiosity. Like, we would be really intrigued if you would do this. This is an official demand. A demand from the ruling party on the part of the national leadership saying, prove yourself. If you are who you say you are, the implication is if Jesus is the Christ, he'll have no problem performing a sign. 
Go ahead, validate your identity. Now think this through. Jesus has already performed hundreds of miracles by this point. They themselves have just seen him cast a demon out of a man. A man who was blind now sees. He was deaf now hears. He was mute and he now speaks. And Jesus has done this over and over and over and over and over again. Why are they now saying, we want to see a sign? Or obviously, they're asking for something on a greater scale. Obviously meant to be more spectacular. Perhaps they're asking for something so astonishing, it would match, well, like the Old Testament. Like, make the sun stand still. Or, well, let's let your mind go for a minute. What are some of the things that you see recorded, like the Red Sea being split in half? Is it on that level that they're asking for? Well, from another verse in Matthew 16, we see that when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus, they specifically say, we want to see a sign from you from heaven. Well, from heaven means the interstellar space. In that particular case, we're talking about where the stars and the planets rotate. What do they want to see on the scale of a spectacular sign? They want to see a demonstration of supernatural power, and then we will believe, but not before. What did they do right up to the very moment of Jesus' death? He's on the cross, he's breathing, drawing in breath, chest heaving in and out, and they say to him, bring yourself down off the cross, and then we will believe. They keep changing the measuring rod, sign after sign after sign. It's not that they believe that Jesus is going to do this. The sign they're asking for is obviously something spectacular, but they don't expect him to do it. Their very purpose is to prove that he cannot do it. Now, I don't think that they saw what's coming, coming. I don't think they anticipated Jesus doing what he's doing. He's not only not going to fall for their trap, he's going to rise above their petty games. Now, remember, they're experts in the Old Testament. Go with me to verse 39. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Or what are they? They're experts in the Old Testament. What has he just done? He leans into the Old Testament, giving them an Old Testament illustration. And, and this is where you really see the heart of God. Jesus' response to their request is saying this. Your heart is so messed up. You're so far from God. See, the sign that you're asking for, it reflects the core issue, and the core issue is your heart. You're evil. And then he calls them adulterous. What's that? He actually labeled them. Why would he use that? Now, remember, I just said that the scribes and the Pharisees, they're political leaders and they're religious leaders, and they represent the nation. And Jesus, God himself is saying, you've wandered far from God. As leaders, they had this responsibility to lead people closer to God, but they become so deeply enmeshed in self-righteousness and in legalism. They not only miss the very work of God right before their eyes, they're trying to prevent other people from seeing it as well. So the Old Testament and the New Testament frequently speaks of a relationship, your relationship that you have this morning. It speaks of your relationship with God like a marriage relationship. 
that Jesus would come again as the groom and receive the church unto himself as a bride. That's not by accident that that's in the New Testament. It's a carryover from the Old Testament. So God describes the Old Testament relationships in terms of a marriage relationship. And Israel is constantly called out for abandoning God and becoming adulterous and doing what Scripture calls whoring after another lover. Look with me on the screen. Hosea 9.1 is a good example of this. Do not rejoice, O Israel, for with exaltation like the nations, for you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene, their new lover is self-righteousness. If they can cross enough T's, dot enough I's, make themselves look good externally, that's what they're chasing after this man-made tradition of religiosity. So God's saying you're spiritually adulterous and you've been pursuing this system of man-made rules. Therefore, you're adulterous against God and you've rejected Jesus. So Jesus' response, verse 39, is no sign is going to be given to you. Now granted, Jesus can do anything. And he has walked on water, raised people from the dead, fed thousands of people. He can do anything he wants. He's omnipotent. Nothing is impossible with God. But God is not going to bend himself to the impulses to satisfy whims of people who have no relationship with him. I've had people who've come up to me and said, that they're not believers, individuals I've had conversation with outside of church who have said, if God would part Lake Michigan like he parted the Red Sea, then I would believe. Probably not. God says, if, even if someone would rise from the dead, they will not believe. So Jesus says, that's a hard heart. God's given all the evidence necessary. Think of the hundreds of miracles he's already done. Its issue is not evidence. The issue is the heart. It's a heart issue. And that's why he calls them evil and adulterous. So he hits the brakes, hits the pause button and says, however you will see a sign, and it is not the sign that you expect. It's the sign of Jonah. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You remember the story. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard the story of Jonah and the whale. The remarkable thing is Jonah's a prophet, and he's a prophet of God, and yet he's disobeying God. God says, go east, he goes west. God says, walk to Nineveh, he tries to sail on a ship to Italy. He wants to go the opposite direction, do anything but what God's caused him to do. So God sends a great storm, he finds himself in the sea. Jesus says he's swallowed up by a sea monster and he remains in the belly of the sea monster unharmed for three days and three nights. Now, I don't intend what we're about to do to be an apologetic on Jonah's story, but obviously, Jesus considers this a literal event. He uses it to typify what's going to happen to him. Jesus takes the account of Jonah's story, and he considers it a literal story. If Jonah had not been literally swallowed and spent three days and three nights and then been vomited up, well, that wouldn't have transferred over to Jesus being three days and three nights literally in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus sees it that way, and I need to help you understand the way that he's using it. And this is one of the reasons I've encouraged you to pull your notes out. What you're going to see come up on the screen is an example of 
the Old Testament using two types of prophecy. There's what's known as typology in scripture. There's verbally predictive typology or prophecy, and there's typically predictive. You see this in your notes, but you also see it on the screen. Now, we're gonna ask the guys in the AV room just to leave that up a little longer than the normal slides so you really drink this in. When you see something that's verbally predictive, you're talking about specific details in which predictions are given. For instance, the Old Testament in verbally predictive form says that the Messiah in the future will be born of a virgin. That's pretty specific because that's never happened on planet Earth, either before or since. No one's heard of anyone being born of a virgin. That's getting very specific in this verbally predictive form or that he's going to be a descendant of David or that he's also going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. This is really narrowing the funnel down to a very fine point about who this one would be. That's verbally predictive. Now, typical predictive. That's when a person or an event foreshadowed the person of Christ, and that's known as typology. Theologians see in the lives of certain individuals the typology of Christ. For instance, in Daniel, in the life of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel is incredibly dedicated to the things of God. Or in the life of Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, held in prison, did nothing wrong, but he's put in the dungeons below the surface of the earth. Or Moses, Moses is a type of Christ. Moses was a deliverer, and Moses himself said, there's coming one in the future who will be a prophet just like me. That's typology. Jesus tells us that Jonah's experience as three days and three nights in the sea typifies or is typology of the Son of Man. Just as Jonah was buried in the depths of the sea, Jesus is going to be buried in the depths of the earth. Just as Jonah was delivered from the great fish after three days and three nights, Jesus is going to be delivered and resurrected after three days in the earth. So Jesus' response to this very literate crowd who knows God's word forward and backward is this. You're asking for a sign? I'm going to give you a sign that you possibly could not have expected, a sign from heaven. And it's not the sign you're anticipating, but it's an infinitely greater one. It's one that's more significant, more powerful, more astonishing, and more magnificent than anything the world has ever seen. It's the sign, and Jesus gives it directly to planet Earth as evidence. The same evidence he gave to the first century, he gives to us in 2019 today. The evidence of the resurrection. Today, you and I are faced with the exact same choice that they're faced with. What do we do with it based on what we know? Uh, Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees his resurrection will be the sign from heaven. What are they going to do with it? Well, we know the story because we can read it. They go back and they begin bribing guards to say the disciples stole the body. Yeah, the tomb's open. Yeah, the body's gone. But the disciples, they stole the body. Well, we can read the historical account to see what they did is they bribed the guards so what do you do with the information? How do you respond? When a person encounters the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, what the person does with that determines their eternal destiny. At New Hope, we like to say what you do next determines what you believe about God. Do you believe that or not? Because Jesus has just drawn a line in the sand. 
You want a sign? There's going to be a sign. Now, granted, some people need to hear this over and over and over and over again. For some, it takes them into their 80s for this to click, to make sense. But ultimately, you got to do something with it. Jesus has said, you're either for me or you're against me. And if you turn your back on Jesus, what are they doing? They're essentially saying, I don't need it. My righteousness is enough. I've crossed the T's. I've dotted the I's. I've put my works on display. Everybody can see I'm a good person. Well, Jesus stands in opposition to that. Watch where he goes. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Are you catching the contrast? What's, what's true of Nineveh? Well, they're the very people that God sent Jonah to speak to. He wanted to run the opposite direction. God said, no, I'm preparing their hearts, Jonah. They're going to receive what you have to say. You need to go there. Jonah didn't want them to receive it. But Jesus is saying, the people of Nineveh, they're smarter spiritually than you Jews in the first century, especially the leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. And this is a scathing rebuke. Because God's telling the best of the best. Those who think they have all their morals rightly aligned before man. You're going to stand in judgment. And it's the people of Nineveh who are going to judge you. Do you remember the story? Nineveh itself was not only Gentile. They're pagan. They're wicked. They're violent. And they're violent. And by pagan standards, they were brutal people. These individuals heard Jonah. And prior to Jonah, they had no knowledge of the one true God. And Jonah could have been a weaker preacher. He just walks through the streets saying, you're going to be destroyed. You better repent. And he goes up and down the streets of Nineveh. And they do. They throw themselves on the mercy of God. God had really prepared their hearts. And so we find in the story of Jonah that they're sitting in sackcloth and ashes on the basis of a very confrontational message. God brings them salvation, and he spares them from destruction. So Jesus shows up in verse 41, and he says, something greater than Jonah is here. Can't you see it right in front of you? Now, mind you, Israel was chosen. They've got the very words of God. They're trusted with his law. They're experts in his law. They've been given God's special blessing, and they've been trusted with the prophecies of the Messiah, like he's going to be born of a virgin, Yet even when God's son comes, they refuse to receive it. So the one who comes says, there's something greater than Jonah here. I came right to you. You didn't even have to come looking for me. And yet they turn their backs and say, we're good. We got this. Our T's are crossed. Our I's are dotted. So Jesus says, you stand under judgment Next verse, verse 42, he doesn't let up. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He's talking about the queen of Sheba. Well, who is this? This is that really elegant woman from Southern Arabia who traveled 1,200 miles to see Solomon. You can read about it in 1 Kings later today. I would encourage you to do it. There's like nine verses, 10 verses there that will fill you in on the details. 
but you've got this very elegant queen who hears about Solomon while she's in her own country and she brings an entourage 1,200 miles with lots of gifts of gold. She's a Sabaean and the Sabaeans had made their wealth through the agricultural industry and through the trade routes. And because of where their country was, people had to pass through going from Europe over to India. And when they did, they left their finances with them as they bought their goods and they became very, very wealthy. And Jesus says, that queen who brought all that wealth to Solomon and sat at his feet, she came directly to him. I've come directly to you. That queen will rise up at the judgment and will condemn you. You consider yourself self-righteous. One day you're going to stand condemned even by a Gentile queen who saw the wisdom of God and rejoiced over it when you read 1 Kings. Let me hit the pause button for a minute. Don't you find it remarkable as you read about Jesus that he had absolutely no trouble reaching the prostitutes and thieves? Yeah, when it comes to the people who drive really nice cars and live in really fine homes and they've got all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted, that they're the hardest individuals to reach because they're morally upright, Jesus is saying. They're under an illusion that all of their life accomplishments have made them good with God. God must really like us. Look at how blessed we are. So to that group in the first century, he says this, Matthew 23, 27, you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What's going on? You've got a group of people who are refusing to recognize they've got sin in their life. And so they see no need for a savior. I'm good. I've got this. God knows that I've been good all my life. I've got this nailed. So Jesus has to speak to them in really hard terms. And hear this. He does it completely out of love. This is not because he wants to condemn them. but Rather so that they would open up their eyes and see the reality of this. And make no mistake. His words are hitting them with blunt force trauma. That these who are so self-righteous have been told, you're not righteous. Your works won't do it for you. You may get invited to all the parties. You may behave properly socially. But that's not enough. And when Jesus rips off the mask, the real spiritual issue is known and it reveals their hearts. And here comes the parable. And he's going to lay alongside a physical truth to a spiritual truth and bring this reality out. And he's demonstrating the need is for inner transformation. The transformation that's only gained by asking Jesus into your heart. Verse 43. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. I don't believe that Jesus is intending a lesson on demonology, but I also don't think he just stumbled into it. It's not by accident that he's using this. Remember where the incident started? If you only back up a few verses, you find that Jesus has just cast a demon out of a man, and the crowd that's watching are saying that he's done the work by the power of Satan. Well, this is only a few minutes later, and now he's giving an illustration of a demon. We're talking about exorcism here. 
In the big picture, what's he driving at? He's illustrating the consequence of reform apart from relationship. In other words, if somebody's only cleaning up the outside while not dealing with the inside, there's an issue. So the central character in this is the unclean spirit. What do we have there? Well, we have a demon, an angel that's fallen, and it's wicked, and it's vile. And we're not told specifically the characteristics, but it's defiled, and it's vile, and it's wicked, but it's not as wicked as the other demons it's going to bring with it later. And we don't know how the unclean spirit is cast out. But for whatever reason, the individual who's in the story, he's freed. He's freed from the bondage of what was holding him, and now he's been set free. And so this demon's out in waterless places in verse 43. What's that? What, when you're in the Middle East, you wouldn't have to go far to find that. That's the desert. There's no water there. It's barren. It's desolate. No one wants to be there. So the demon is removed, and it's seeking rest. It needs to replace something with what it lost. Now, the New Testament's fairly specific that rather than exist in an unattached form, these fallen angels or these demon spirits, they want to indwell a body, preferably a human body, even animals if they have to, according to the Bible. But it doesn't find the rest. And so Jesus goes on with the parable, verse 44, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. I want to return to my house. The house is the physical body of the individual, and there's a great deal of ownership there. It's what it previously had possessed, and it's saying, it's my house, I want it back. Now, mind you, you've got an individual who's tried to clean up their life. They've been crossing all the T's, they've been dotting all the I's, they've performed well in society. Whatever was messed up before has now been cleaned up, and things are in order, and it's been swept out, and the window's open. And temporarily, this one's been freed from bondage. It's been doing all the right external things. You and I can do that through fear or through determination. We can clean up our life. We can manage to rid ourselves of sinful habits. And if we play religion and if we just follow the rules and if we behave well, we'll appear as though we're law-abiding citizens doing all the things we're supposed to do. And sometimes the motive is really, really pure. Maybe it's a husband who's determined to do something to help his marriage. And so he works really hard to change something because of his love for his wife and his children. But that kind of self-cleansing that's absent of Jesus is lacking, Scripture says. You just determine to clean yourself up on your own, there's still a void inside. There's, there's a hole. And you're looking for something to fill that hole. Moral reform without Jesus always leaves a person empty. If Jesus isn't there, something else is going to replace it. And you add to it religious behavior, and religious behavior is just never effective. It's actually messed up at times if you're doing it just for the sake of religion. Add to that the efforts of human priorities. We, we can find ourselves completely empty and confused, and those are the works of the natural man. What this person needs is the needs the work of a supernatural conversion. He needs the presence of God's Spirit. So it finds it unoccupied in verse 44. We've seen Jesus saying, this is a tragedy. After all the human effort, 
of trying to sweep up the life, trying to clean it up, trying to put it in order, the demon comes back and finds it unoccupied, verse 44. Now, logically, you would say, when the demon left, this individual's life changed for the better. Absolutely. He seems freed, but it's still empty. Context now. In context, Jesus is speaking to that evil generation, that adulterous generation, in this case, first century Israel. The nation had been purged. They had been purged of a demon. For hundreds of years, they had chased after ideology and idols, anything but God. And so God sent them off into Babylonian captivity, and he purged them. They come back to Israel and they're wide open, and they're ready. If anybody's ready to receive a Savior, a Deliverer, it's them, and they're looking for a Messiah. But God sends the Messiah, and it's not the one they want, and we find that their reformed behavior is not enough because reform can't fill the massive hole that's inside them. Reform alone can't fill the massive spiritual void of true relationship. The only way to have relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. That's true relationship. So if they receive the Savior, they'd be filled with spiritual life. This is what Jesus is driving at for them. It's not enough to clean the house. It's not enough to get invited to all the parties and have the nice car and behave really well in society. It's not enough to cross all the T's and dot all the I's. That's what you can do. You need what God can do. Because mere right behavior or reformation, if you will, will not save you. So Jesus says this is how it ends tragically. Verse 45. Then it, meaning the evil spirit, it goes out and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. And you see what he was driving at here. God's heart is for his people that he created. Our nation in 2019, their nation in the first century, their nation is in great danger. They've made attempts at reform. They're doing all the rules, all the systems, but they're doing it without the power of the one true God. And so they're barren. There's an emptiness within them. In other words, if there is only external change, it's not going to last. There has to be core internal change. The thinking has to be reshaped. So just like the Pharisees and the scribes of the first century, we find ourselves facing very similar circumstances today. Here's how I pray for you this coming week. And I'm going to ask you to pray for the 9 o'clock service, and I ask the 9 o'clock service to be praying for you this week because you're gonna be encountering this very reality this week. Like the Pharisees and the scribes, this is characteristic of people in our day who present an appearance of godliness. They've got their life in order, but they don't have any relationship with Jesus, so there's this huge void in their life. And just like the Pharisees, you may have people in your life, within your social circle, who become deeply offended at the thought of you telling them that that's not enough. That you would have a conversation that would say, you're not in a place where you're good enough. 
well, the clue phone's ringing at that point because none of us is good enough, amen? It's Jesus who makes us good enough. That, that's what changes us. So if you encounter a friend or a coworker and you tell them that they're not good enough, their works are not acceptable, but they can be made right with God through Jesus, I'm good, I'm out, I don't need that. That's typically the response and that's exactly what Jesus is finding here. So scripture's making it really clear that morality without any relationship to God is very dangerous territory. Jesus repeatedly emphasizes this over and over and over again. Mere outward performance of righteousness is one of the greatest hindrances to finding Christ. So if you, if you want to end this the way Jesus is ending this and you're wondering how do I put some of those pieces together, see what he's hitting on here? He's saying the condition of the heart of individuals, it's like that one who's got the unoccupied space and they've swept it and they've cleaned it and it shines and from all appearances, it looks really good. But the window is only letting the sunlight through for a short period of time. Israel in Jesus' day had a very short window in the first century. Scripture speaks about a great light shining upon them and giving them insight. Look with me on the screen, Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, that light will shine on them. You see that on Christmas cards this time of year. This is what it's talking about. Jesus' time among them would be very time limited, but it would be long enough for them to believe. They don't need more evidence. They need heart surgery. Same thing that's needed today. Because if we persist in disbelief, the final condition will be worse than the first. Become even more hardened by successive rejections over and over and over and over again. And this is where my heart breaks for people who only show up at a church at funerals or maybe Christmas and Easter. Is this. Individuals hear this news over and over and over and at the end of it go, I'm good. I don't need that. I'm good the way I am. I've been a good boy all my life. So Jesus ends by saying, the seven other spirits that come in, that's a parallel to the deeper state of unbelief. It just gets worse. It gets harder and harder and harder. Here's what I see him pulling out of the parable. People are in danger. As a people in the first century, they're in great danger of an even worse condition than before Jesus came physically among them. But the same translates over to us today. And if we would take advantage of that window of opportunity, Jesus says, I'll come in. But if you let that window shut, it's going to become harder and harder and harder and harder. That's why the Bible says, now is the day of salvation. Now. If you find yourself in the 11 o'clock service this morning and this is the first time you've ever heard these things, know this. I would be honored to speak with you after the service. If you find me like over here by the staircase talking to people, just hang on and, and wait. I'll, I'll be happy to have conversation with you. It'd be my honor. We're talking about eternity here. And if you need to deal with this issue, let's chat. I had multiple individuals speak with me after the nine o'clock service. I'd be honored to pray with you. If you've got issues going on in your family life you want to address, let's talk it through. Know this before you go out the door. A decision for Jesus is demanded by God. He says, what are you going to do with me? You're going to draw closer 
or you're going to walk away because there's no fence line whatsoever. You can't be in a gray area. So a decision for Jesus is required and nothing less than that. Let's pray, New Hope. Let's pray together that God would be at work from this. Would you join me? Father, I understand where you do heart surgery is many times the most uncomfortable place to be in. From the power and the effect of your word going forth, your spirit takes it and clarifies, and you have done that this morning. So we give all the glory and all the honor and all the praise to you. You say your word is alive and that it's active and it is sharp, and we have indeed seen that this morning. It's piercing. Where you have done heart surgery, God, I I pray that you would continue to be massaging and gently working upon the hearts that you have spoken to this morning. I pray for those who already believe, God, that having been equipped now, that they would take this out into the marketplace, out into the social environments and the, the job environments, God, in the midst of our own family and our own homes, use us as representatives of your kingdom. Even where we fall short and we fail, God, let us speak truth into things that we know we can speak into. So that requires boldness, Father. So I'm praying for boldness for the believers. Father, for those who are new to church, maybe hearing this for the first time, God, I ask that you would be so close that they can feel your presence right now. And if they don't feel like they need to act on this, God, that maybe even at the point right now where they're sensing that their heart would burst if they don't act on this, cause them, Father, to respond. We pray in advance for our friends who will be joining us over the next few weeks, God, that you would begin now preparing their hearts, that they would receive what you will make clear. In the meantime now, God, we pray that you'd send us out with your blessing. We take on this day and this week, and we ask for this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.